This morning, um, I want to share something of incredible importance. Um, it is everything as to why I'm up here. It's everything to why um, I do what I do. Um, and so it's so foundational to all of us in our faith. And so um, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. And what I would hope this morning is in, uh, you just let it wash over. Just let the truths of it wash over. And it's all rooted in Matthew 1. And we've sung the word over and over this morning, rightfully so. And so thank you for Jay for setting the table. Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child. It will bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Three words. God with us. What does that mean? Man, that's loaded, isn't it? God with us. Over the years, I've had a lot of conversations, very personal conversations with with some people close to me and, and some str just strangers. And some of the conversations have gone something along the lines of me sitting down and saying to them, you know, John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And verse 14 says, the Word became flesh. What do you think that means? And what do you think it means when Thomas bowed before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God? And what, is, what does God mean in Hebrews 1 when he says, let all the angels of God worship Christ? Who does that make Jesus? And it, oftentimes in those conversations where I would say clearly Scripture points out Jesus is God, that he was God who came to this earth. I've often heard something along these lines, but that doesn't make sense. And I, and I know humanity, I know myself enough to know that if something doesn't make sense, we want it to make sense. And so we'll change it until it makes sense. That's where you get false teaching. That's where heresy comes into church. That's why there's some who will come knock at your door and say Jesus was created, he was just a man. That's why Islam teaches what they do about Jesus, because it doesn't make sense, so let's make it make sense. But we're people of the word. And so let's let the word tell us who Emmanuel is, and what does it mean, God with us? And this is so significant, I can't emphasize this enough. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because Jesus made a statement in John 8 that should cause us to shudder a little. He said to those in the multitudes, he says, if you do not believe who I claim to be, you'll die in your sin. Sounds serious, doesn't it? There's a lot at stake about what we believe about Jesus Christ. 
Well, let's look at what the scriptures say. First of all, let's consider the humanity of Christ. Galatians 4.4 tells us, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, the incarnate one was not simply a man in whom God dwelt, or even a man uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. Instead, Jesus of Nazareth is God, the Son, living personally on earth. Many people deny the virgin birth based on their, res- their rejection, really, of historical theology. And most focus, or they must focus on the fact, we must focus on the fact that Scripture presents the virgin conception as a mighty act of God, rooted in his covenantal promises to bring about redemption through the Messiah. But it doesn't make sense. Luke 1, 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Through the virgin conception of Christ, God's glory, glory's presence breaks into the world to indwell a human nature. That in a man, God is with us. Emmanuel. But as a human, as God came to this earth, we, Scripture tells us that he had human weakness and limitations. He's born as a human baby. We read Luke 2.7. Luke 2.40, he grew and became strong. Luke 2.52, he increased in wisdom and stature. John 4.6 tells us he was weary. John 19.28 tells us he was thirsty. Matthew 4.2 tells us he was hungry. Luke 23.43 tells us he died. And Luke 24, 39 says he rose with a human body, but it was glorified. The wonderful truth is never weak, never ill, never aging. And that's what awaits us. Luke 24, 50 through 51, he ascended to heaven in a human body. Acts 1 and 11 says he'll return to earth the same way he left. Jesus had a human mind. We're told in Luke 2, 52, he increased in wisdom. Hebrews 5, 8 says he learned obedience. Mark 13.32 says he did not know the day of his return. Jesus had a human soul and emotions. John 12.27, as he looked forward to the cross, he said to his disciples, my soul is troubled. John 13.21, in the upper room, we learned that he was troubled in spirit. Matthew 26.38, in the garden, we read he's very sorrowful, even to death. John 11.35, he wept. Hebrews 5, 7, we're told that in the flesh he prayed with loud cries and tears. In Hebrews 4, 15, he was tempted. And we know from the Gospels that people saw him as only a man. People in his village looked at him and said, isn't this son of Joseph the carpenter? We're told also in the scriptures that his brothers and sisters didn't even believe in him. And so his own family saw him as just a man. But although he came as a man and had human weakness, limitations, he was sinless. Scriptures tell us, Luke 4.13, after the devil had ended every temptation, Jesus never sinned. John 8.29, he says, I am always doing what is pleasing to God. John 15 says, 10, Jesus said, I have kept all my Father's commandments. Acts 2.27, 3.14, 4.30, 7.52, 13.35 all Jesus as the Holy One, the Righteous One. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, 
who knew no sin became sin for us. Hebrews 4.15, he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he says he committed no sin. 1 John 2.1 says Jesus Christ, the righteous one again. 1 John 3.5 says in him there was no sin. He was sinless. I'm kind of getting sick of, I've come across unfortunately many times recently where there's this idea Jesus needed to be born again. No, he was sinless. He was sinless. Yet Jesus was truly tempted. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 said he's tempted in the wilderness. Hebrews 2, 18, because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. By the way, praise God for that. We're going to be tempted this week. And we have one who's able to help us. And because he came to this earth, he gets it. He knows what temptation is. Hebrews 4.15, for we did not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You see, the scripture present us with the real enfleshment of the eternal son who now has a full and complete human nature. The New Testament does not equivocate on this truth or leave the humanity of Christ as a matter of implication. You see, the Gospels lay down this foundation of the incarnation that the Word became flesh. John even ascribes the spirit of the Antichrist to anyone who does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Paul teaches that Jesus accomplishes reconciling work in his body of flesh. And then in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, God condemns sin in the flesh, Romans 8.3. Peter speaks of Christ dying for us in the flesh, 1 Peter 3.18. And according to Hebrews, Christ was made a little lower than the angels and shared in our humanity in order to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.9-10. You see, the entire weight of the New Testament bears witness to the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to come to this earth? Well, Romans 5, I'm just going to look at a couple, couple examples. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, tell us one reason it was necessary. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus came as a representation, a representative would be the better word, to obey God on our behalf. He would be a sacrifice who would be perfect. Every human being, Paul tells us in Romans, is in Adam. We're guilty by sinners, guilty by choice. We're in Adam. But Jesus came as the last Adam, the full and sinless man, Jesus, perfectly qualified to redeem fallen humanity. And in Jesus, we have the last Adam, who is our representative. He came as a substitute to die for sin in our place. He came to be an example. 1 John 2, 6, if anyone claims to live in Jesus, they must walk as Jesus did. And he became a perfect example of what that's like. He came as a sympathetic priest. Listen to Hebrews 2. I want to read. Hebrews 2. 
Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 18. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. We keep reading, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like the brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's a sympathetic priest, a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 said there's one mediator between God and man, the man. Christ Jesus. The scriptures are clear on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 39 says, Jesus says, look, I have flesh and bones. Acts 7, 56, Stephen said, I see one like the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. John said in Revelation 1, 13, he fell before one like the Son of Man. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus promises, we'll drink again wine with his disciples in the Father's kingdom. And we'd be right to say he will be a man forever in that sense. But that's not the full picture, and we dare not stop there. Because the scriptures overwhelmingly testify to the fact that even as he came to earth, Jesus was God. He didn't never cease being God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Emmanuel. John 1, 18 John says, God, God, the one and only Son. John 20, 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5 of Jesus refers to him, the God over all. Titus 2, 13 says, Jesus is our great God and Savior. Hebrews 1, 8, the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God. And 2 Peter 1 refers to Jesus by saying he's our God and he's our Savior. There's more than abundant testimony in the New Testament, in the Bible, that Jesus is God. He never ceased to be God. Matter of fact, the word Lord, Kyrios, is used of Christ over and over. Matter of fact, it's used 6,814 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Hebrew, my commentary tells me, of the Hebrew name for Yahweh, the Lord. Unto, unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Quite a proclamation. Luke 1.43, Elizabeth says, the mother of my Lord. Matthew 3.3, 3, prepare the way for the Lord. It's Kyrios. It's claiming divinity that this Lord has come. He's come to this earth. 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul says there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.10-12, the Father says, you Lord, founded the earth, and many, many other times in the epistles. There's other strong claims to deity in the New Testament. John 8, 57, 58, as the multitudes and Pharisees and a religious crowd flocked around Jesus, they said, who do you claim to be? You seem to claim to be greater than our father Abraham. And Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. And he took God's name to himself, and they got it because they tried to stone him. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, Jesus says. Acts 7, 56, Stephen says, there's the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, calls him the Son of God and said, let all the angels of God worship him. But as Jesus walked this earth, there's evidence of his deity. I mean, there's, it's just quite a unique, he possessed all the attributes of deity, we're told in Matthew 8, 26 through 27, he stilled the storm. Try that one. He spoke and nature listened to him. It stopped. Matthew 14, 19, took a couple fish, little bread, and fed thousands upon thousands of people. Don't you wish you could stretch your food budget like that? Wouldn't that be really good? That'd be helpful, wouldn't it? John 2, 1 through 11, he changed water to wine. We're told in Mark 2.8, he was omniscient. He knows what's in the heart and what's in the thoughts of man. We're also told the same thing in John 1.48, John 6.64, John 2.25, and John 16.30. That same testimony that even as he walked this earth, he was omniscient. Matthew 18.20 and 28.20 speak to his omnipresence. He's present everywhere. Mark 2.5-7 speaks to Jesus' sovereignty. John 2.19, John 10, 17 through 18 speaks to his immortality. Told you there'd be a lot of scripture. Let it wash over you. Hebrews 7.16 refers to Jesus having an indestructible life. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 said he's worthy to be worshipped. And so in Jesus, we have full humanity, full deity. Now there's a question probably coming to your mind. You know, that doesn't make sense. What's, how, how? How did he pull that one off? How can God be fully human and be fully God? You're not the first one to ask it. In the Enlightenment period, all the early church never really grappled much with this. They understood and believed what the scriptures were teaching. Obviously came from witnesses. And then the scriptures were recorded. But really it was the Enlightenment period where a new path was trying to be forged. And the, and the implications and influence is still around today. It's called the kenosis theory, and it's, it's, it's explained different ways. But if you'd open to Philippians 2, an important passage, this whole theory is really based, if we could narrow it down on this passage. Philippians 2. I want to read verses 5 through, let's go 5 through 11 to get the whole picture here. Now, the context is significant. Paul's talking about humility. That's the context. He's encouraging the church in Philippi to, to live with a humble heart and to live, consider others better than themselves. And he uses for the perfect example of humility, Jesus. And he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you look in verse 7, you see the words, but emptied himself. The word for emptied is kenosis. And the question is, okay, 
Jesus came to this earth, so as he came to this earth, becoming human, he must have left part of him in heaven, or left part of his deity, left some of his attributes. He left, emptied himself of deity. That's what many would teach. And we know already from just looking at just multiple parts of Scripture, that's not true. He didn't leave his deity in heaven. And yet that's the claim. The early church did not understand it that way. The text does not say he emptied himself of divine attributes. What the text does say is he took the form of a servant. Wayne Grudem says he emptied himself in a sense of his status. Instead became a servant. Without using his deity for personal comfort, without using his deity for personal benefit, without using his deity to avoid facing hardships or temptations, he took the form of a servant. The text says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And again, the purpose of the whole text is to encourage humility to imitate Christ. In the larger context of the New Testament doctrine, which is the way to study the Bible, is to take Scripture, compare it with all of Scripture. If you take one and try to make sense of the one and kind of forget the rest of Scripture, usually you're going to be in trouble. It's certainly true here. The larger text of the New Testament doctrine does not support that at all. Jesus didn't leave any attributes of deity in heaven. He didn't leave his deity at all in heaven. Anyone who claims or teaches that he left his deity, is part of his deity in heaven, is drifted into error, unless they're corrected, will wind up in full-blown heresy. It's this significant, Jesus says. You need to believe who I claim to be. God in the flesh, Emmanuel. God with us. Not part of God. God with us. What does that look like? I mean, pretty interesting how that plays out. Colossians 1 says, In him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 says, In him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, Matthew 1.23, Emmanuel, God with us. And so our proper response is not to reject the clear and central teaching of Scripture about the Incarnation, but simply to recognize it will remain a paradox. But don't drift from his teaching. Matter of fact, I'd encourage you to revel in its wonder and to enhance your worship this Christmas. Why was Jesus' deity necessary? Because salvation had to come from the Lord. No one could pay the penalty for our sin. 1 Timothy 2.5, only someone truly and fully God could be our mediator because after all, it's God we've offended. John 14.9, only God could reveal God most fully and bring us back to God. 2 John 9, which is a book we probably don't read much, is a sober warning about this all. 2 John 7 through 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you would receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. John gives a warning. Matter of fact, a lot of 1 John is talking about um, those who denied Jesus came in the flesh. They denied his humanity. But there's also those who deny his deity. Let's say he left his deity and he just came and became a man, that he wasn't really God in the flesh. We dare not go either way. Deity and humanity in one person. That's what the scripture says. To say we cannot understand this is appropriate humility. 
But to say it's not possible seems more like intellectual arrogance because it doesn't make sense. And when it doesn't make sense, we try to make it make sense, and that's when we get in trouble. Now, as we combine these specific texts, they kind of give us a picture, a little bit anyways. We know one nature does some things that the other nature does not do. The Chalcedonian Creed says the property of each nature is preserved. Jesus' human nature ascended to heaven and is no longer in the world, but his divine nature is everywhere. Stick with me here. Jesus was 30 years old, we read, in Luke 3.23, but he also eternally existed. Jesus was weak and tired in his human nature, but his divine nature was omnipotent, all-powerful. While Jesus was asleep in the boat, he also continually carried along all things by the word of his power, according to Colossians. Jesus' human nature died, but his divine nature did not die, but was able to raise himself from the dead, we read in, in uh, John 2.19 and Hebrews 7.16. To preserve the reality of Jesus' human nature, we must say that Jesus, in a sense, at least theologians would word it this way, he had two wills, a human will and a divine will, and he had a two consciousness, a human and divine consciousness. And they say that because Jesus' human consciousness did not know the time of his return, yet his divine consciousness knew all things, as we just read some verses that say that. Jesus' human will was tempted, but his divine will could not be tempted. Or to put it another way, anything either nature does, the person of Christ does. Things true of one nature but not the other are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. In Jesus, I guess to put it the best way, we have the wedding, the perfect wedding of his deity in his, in his humanity, coexisting in one person without being mixed or confused. Before Abraham was, I am. I am leaving the world. I am with you always. Christ died for your sins. Anything either nature does, the person of Christ does. It doesn't make sense. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. There are only three words before we began the sermon, and now here at the end you're like, whoa, baby, there's a lot there. There is. But we need to be very clear on who this Emmanuel is. He never quit being God. Matter of fact, back in 451, in the city of Chalcedon, there were several scholars, uh, believers who got together. There started to be an influx a little bit about the questions of who Jesus was when he came to this earth. They developed the Chalcedonian Creed, it's called. And in it, they made these statements, and these are good. Jesus has two natures. He's God and man. Each nature is full and complete. He's fully God and fully man. Each nature remains distinct. Christ is only one person. And things that are true only of one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. There's always that fighting and defending, and we must defend the truth of Scripture of who Jesus is. We must be ready, ready to defend it. Jesus' humanity and his deity joining together inconfusedly in one person and having this understanding will enhance our worship. What this entails then is that the baby conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary, who was born, who grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men, was the same divine person who had eternally been the Son in relation to the Father and the Spirit. 
The incarnate one was not simply a man in whom God dwelt, as I said earlier, he would, or even a man uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. Instead, Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son, living personally on earth and experiencing what it means to be human for us and for our salvation. In fact, the church insisted on this early because this is precisely what Scripture teaches and is precisely the kind of redeemer we have. We need a Savior who is a man to represent us, but more than this, we need the Lord to come and save. So it could always be said, salvation is of the Lord. In Hollywood, many celebrities have come, knelt on the sidewalk outside Grumman's Chinese restaurant to leave their hand and footprints in the cement on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, they call it. And fans would gather, they'd applaud to see these Incredibly important people. These stars who came and put their handprints in the cement. And these were people that were respected, they were recognized, and even revered. And if that's the criteria, Jesus Christ rises well above those on the sidewalk. He holds the top spot in the universe. After all, when it comes to making a name... God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the honor that Jesus has gained for himself will last for eternity. It includes not only human beings but angelic beings as well. Every person who has ever lived or will live will bow in honor of Jesus Christ, either voluntarily in worship and adoration and submission or involuntary at the final judgment. But every knee will bow before the King of glory. Jesus invites us to bow our knees and our hearts before him as Savior, and then follow him as Lord all of our life. And then when we meet him in heaven, and in a sense walk down heaven's hall of fame, there will only be one set of footprints and one set of handprints there. And they'll belong to Jesus Christ. And these prints will bear the marks of nails because he was nailed to the cross for our sins. And as we'll see, those nail-scarred hands and feet through all eternity will be reminded us that Jesus is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. We will give eternal praise to Jesus Christ, the celebrity of the universe, the mighty King, God the Son incarnate. Amen and amen.